And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Welcome, everyone, to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, to talk about the Bible and technology. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. Hey, good to have you on. It's going to be a, a fun subject, I think. How is the weather in your respective communities? It's actually getting a little hot on this end of the world now. Uh, June is starting <laughs> to give way to July, so <laughs> it's it's never it's never like you know calm and pleasant like it is over in Adam's part of the world. It's either like blistering cold or blistering hot. So here we are. Well, since we're talking about technology, I wondered if I shouldn't just, you know, give the uh, forecasts from the almanac rather than, you know, <laughs> using you any go. kind of modern. There you go. You know. <laughs> well, gentlemen, this is a very interesting subject that we are undertaking. At first, you might wonder why a Christian podcast would even talk about technology. Are we going to advocate for some kind of Amish return? Are we going to tell everyone to throw away their smartphones and their computers? Or are we going to say, hey, let's get rid of the Sunday gathering and just meet via Skype, whereby we may consecrate the elements digitally. Neither one of those is quite the case, as you'll find out. But as we deal with technology, of course, we have to define it. So what is technology, Zolan? Technology is should not be confused with the products of technology. I know that when many people think about tech, they usually think about things like what like high tech, like computers or cars or, you know, the latest smartphone or whatever that case may be. But if we only think of technology in those terms, we kind of miss the, the broader implications of what we're talking about here. So technology, I think, is best defined as a, the, a means that we use to an end or, you know, using specific means to obtain specific goals. And when we understand technology in that sense, we are able to see how it affects all of human history and how it's also affecting us today. Yeah, I'd specify that the means are, by definition, artificial, by which I don't mean like astroturf instead of grass, but they are something, you know, if a tree is growing and I cut it down and I build a boat out of that tree, that's, that's a technological endeavor by definition. So I think it, it is important to see this as something that is basically human, regardless of, say, level of technological advancement, rather than thinking of technology as specific to Silicon Valley or some specific stage of economic frequency of exchange and you know use of rare earths or something. Yeah, yeah, there is technology before the the transistor, before the vacuum tube, before Edison's light bulb, before all of this. You know, since the dawn of man especially since the fall, which if you think about it, technology kind of exists to one degree or another to alleviate some of the effects of the fall, right? 
it, it's to make it's generally to make things a little bit easier. At least that's probably the the most charitable definition we can give. But yeah, the example of the canoe you you give is good. Think about a man trying to fish with his hands versus trying to fish with a net or fish with a a line and a, and a hook. Hunting with a bow versus or a spear versus hunting with a firearm, for example. All of these things that we don't think of as super high tech really are examples of that. To go from, say, tongue and groove to a hammer and nail. To go from building a house of wood to building a house of recycled material. All of these things exist for various reasons and are seeking to achieve some goal. Now, that makes it a very broad topic then and one that's difficult to discuss in just a podcast or a few brief podcasts. So why would we approach this from a biblical perspective then? Why must a Christian tackle this subject? I think what you find nowadays, and I think people recognize this, even people who aren't Christians, that we live in a certain time in which technology has become a very live issue. The way that technology affects us, I don't know if you want to go so far as to say it's completely different from every other age, but we are surrounded by the products of man's intentions. We are surrounded by the means to to achieve a wide number of goals, and we're not even really sure how it's affecting us. The fact that it is affecting us, you know, with increasing rates of like depression and stuff like that, or, you know, this kind of distance which we're feeling, I don't think can be denied. But why we need to approach this question then from a biblical standpoint is to say, what is it that God actually says about technology and how we should interact with it? I think that it's, it's also the case that when you're thinking about technology, you always want to keep in mind that biblically we're talking about technology as used by fallen man. And so when you're thinking about this issue, and we'll talk about the Bible shortly, you want to keep in mind that you're talking about people who intend one thing, but do not understand often what they intend, much less what will come out of their intentions. When you see tech gurus talking about the future of technology, they are usually expressing their sense of what should come to be, whether that is explicitly transhuman or not, in terms of an anthropology that is not the Bible's. So when the Bible is talking about technology, it's always talking about human beings who are flawed, who are horribly fallible, who do not understand their own heart, and the righteous among whom fall seven times in a day. So that understanding of mankind is very different from the one shared by the people generally who make the technology that controls so much of our lives and who you know, write books about what the future will be. So that's that's important to keep in mind because we're not talking about something neutral. I think that oftentimes when Christians talk about technology, they're trying to get to a point of either caricaturing any rejection of anything as, quote, Amish, as if that's the worst thing in the world. We can talk about that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. In order to say, well, technology is neutral, therefore it all depends on how you use it, which abstractly I could agree with, but concretely it is not what we observe technology actually doing to people's lives. Yeah, this, I mean, here's the thing. This is, it was also like uh, the discussion of government that we had in a previous podcast. The Bible informs every sphere of society, up to and including technology and the way we use it and how we interact with our fellow man. 
I don't believe that anything is neutral ground in the world. I don't believe with the fallen world that the Bible's view is in any sense equal to the way the world sees things. The Bible is always over any other interpretation and is informing and usually correcting every other interpretation. Once again, we at A Word Fitly Spoken would like to remind you that the Bible is not merely something that speaks on quote-unquote doctrinal matters or simply churchly matters, but it does inform socially, civilly. If you don't believe that the Bible does that, you're going to miss out on, well, pretty much the whole book. The new heavens and the new earth is one civil and spiritual kingdom melded together. So if you don't like a godly monarchy, (laughs) where do you get to heaven? So, I mean, all that having been said, I mean, you're absolutely right. People want to say, well, this is just something that we have that can be used for good or or ill. Well, yes and no. Since it is such a broad topic, you know, it really depends on what kind of technology we're talking about. And ultimately, it's more than just the tech to get there. It's what is the end? What is the goal of this technology? Why are we developing certain things, uh, particularly with regard to transhumanism? or certain, let's say, chemicals or, or genetically modified organisms? Why are, we, why are we doing this? Why are we constantly developing technology that, that tracks and, and monitors simply for the sake of advertising or augmenting our reality in some way? What are the ends you know, in modern technology, and, and why are they trying to reach them? Those are really the big, the big questions that we have to tackle as Christians and really as humans in an industrialized society. Yeah, and, and and if Christians don't answer these questions, someone else will. I mean, I, I think that a lot of times people aren't really aware of why the things that happen do happen. For instance, why is research on human cloning and CRISPR so much more advanced and and not generally illegal in East Asia than it is in Western countries? And the reason for that is the vastly differing East Asian assorted philosophies about the nature of life. That's why CRISPR research is going on in China. That's why cloning has been attempted in South Korea. And if you don't answer these deeper questions, technology will be pursued by people who are willing to answer those questions and to give totally non-biblical, that is actually evil answers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, Christianity does not exist in a vacuum, and the world isn't neutral, and not all worldviews are the same when compared with the Holy Bible. It's amazing what one can do and how one's view of the world changes when you understand the Bible as inspired and God speaking to us through all of time and not just a particular place. You know, when God says these things in the Bible, as we're going to see here very shortly, is he merely speaking to the technical limitations of the people of that day? Or is he actually teaching us something that we can bring into our homes and societies? So, all right, gentlemen, we've defined that pretty well. Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. So, we would agree that, in a sense... Uh, really, everything comes from God, and that would also include technology to one degree or another. So God actually gives technology in his providence in both ordinary and extraordinary ways. So what would be some basic examples of that, Zelwyn? We'll take um, an early example in Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, when Noah is commanded to build the ark, 
the ark itself would be an example of a piece of technology and God commanding Noah to build it as a means of delivering the animals and Noah's family from the flood would be an instance of God actually giving a technology in order to achieve their uh, a specific goal, in this case, the salvation and the continuance of the human race. You also have other examples of like ex- Exodus chapter 31 with Bezalel, who is commissioned to be the chief architect artist yeah artist, artist in residence kind of thing yeah of of the tabernacle and the bible specifically says that god gave him his ability and that ability came from from the lord but there's not supposed to be any images in the old testament sorry <laughs> <laughs> edit that if you want to yeah exactly yeah uh, <laughs> And then you have other examples like in Hosea chapter 2, where in response to Israel's faithlessness, God specifically says that he gave them the gold and the silver which they used for Baal. And gold and silver, of course, are products of technology, even high technology in the days of the Bible with smelting and that whole process. Yeah, sure. I think that one example that is a little more speculative is the command to Adam to work the ground prior to the fall. Yeah, what's that look like? Yeah, does he need a plow or a hoe or anything in in the garden? Right, presuming presuming if not even even if you don't presume the invention of agricultural tools, which I think you kind of do, you're still presuming some kind of human management that that dominion, the extension of dominion over the face of the earth which is commanded to him would in would require human management of the environment. Even if that is all entirely by natural means, it's still we, we're still meant to be cultivators. We're not necessarily meant to live in an utterly natural, just running around the forest, whatever, running around some kind of like tropical forest, eating the fruit on the trees. We we're supposed to build and do and expand and cultivate. So it, it's it's interesting to consider that technology may be essentially part of being human, and I think that 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 comes back to the issue of a large part of the problem with technology, not necessarily being any given material, whether you're talking about silica or or wood or water, it's the human being who is designing the system or the tool and who may not even be aware of what he's trying to do finally with it. Sure. Yeah, that's more than fair. Now, ultimately, yeah, so we're starting to get into this. So we have some positive and some negative examples more and more, though, as the Bible goes on, we see man misuse technology as a mean to obtain things apart from God. So God is going to have to very early on make prohibitions, for example, against graven images, because men tend to take things like wood and silver and gold and make them into into idols. That's always kind of an interesting one when we talk about idolatry, which is going to keep coming up over and over and over, but it even extends on into the New Testament, where we have people and their magic books or these totems that they have. So you look at Acts 19, for example, the witches are converted or the pagans are converted and they burn their magic books. To what degree do we view these magical items like idols, totems, magical texts as technology? Is one merely superstitious while technology is actually a real thing? Or is there more of an overlap between these two subjects than we care to admit? Well, it really comes down to, if we go back to the original definition of that we have of technology, of using specific means to obtain specific ends, 
magic actually fits quite nicely into that definition because magic is never just a light show or, you know, just trying to display my, my power. Magic, especially in the biblical sense, is always an attempt to obtain ends that only really properly belong to God, that I'm trying to take control of something that uh, that is ultimately God's province, that, you know, is is his control. And so in using these magical means to speak with the dead, to force the force God to do something, whatever the end might be, I am attempting through this magical technology, if you will, to do something that I should not be doing. And now we're starting to see the the limits of technology, even in this kind of in this example. It, it's really just a matter of defining magic. And because most people think of magic as certain superstitious, primitive ideas and practices that go with those ideas, they cannot see the basic similarity between what someone in first century Ephesus is trying to achieve through the use of a magical book versus how they are trying to, let's say, redefine themselves in the sense that stuff like trans rights and kids encouraging one another to be trans happens almost entirely through the internet. And uh, so I, I, I don't think they see the basic similarity between this thing is being misused and used to mutilate and pervert God's creation, whether that's a human body or anything else. They can't see the basic similarity between that and what they might think of as primitive or superstitious magic. But they're both the misuse of some created some artificial means for an evil goal. Right. Right. Well, I mean, you can you can even take an example like of any ancient Greek magic text, want to curse a neighbor or or very common, want to be healed from a certain disease. Okay. So now you're going to practice some kind of pagan art to do it. To where now we're more and more just trying to find the fountain of youth or looking for eternal life apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. So we're willing to stoop to any and all ethical or unethical means of uh, medical testing, things like that, which brings us back to the the transhumanism thing, not to be confused with transgenderism, of course. You look at something like, again, what's another common trope in, in ancient magic, trying to get rich and then... As a, as a society, as a market, what do we invent? The modern economic system, whereby money is just moved around and it's all interest rates and percentages trying to sort of make the books, make the records say certain things so we can achieve. So there's there's been shady and unethical and ungodly means to end since the very beginning. And really, the similarities between these these things are stark. And the root of it, which is sin, is exactly the same, whether it's ancient magic, modern magic, or modern technology. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org.
Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, Adam Koontz talking the Bible and technology. Of course, technology in the broad sense. I'm assuming you heard the first segment. Uh, if you haven't, you know, be sure to check. If you're listening on the radio, perhaps check us out on Podbean or at wordfitlyspoken.org where you can download the episodes and rewind and fast forward as much as you want. So we're talking about technology and we've gotten into the biblical witness concerning this. And we just briefly touched on man misusing technology, particularly, you know, in making graven images. So let's look at a few more examples then, gentlemen, of a misuse of technology in the Bible. Yes, yeah, so we have, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this. You have in Second Chronicles 26, Uzziah is described as making uh, siege mas- machines on the top of his walls. And as a result of this, he falls into pride. Idolatry continues to be a constant one. I mean, you have like Hosea 4, where my people inquire of a piece of wood instead of the living God. Or in Obadiah verse 3, where the people up in their fortresses on the cliffs say, who are going to bring me down to the ground? And the one I think is maybe the even the most enlightening, the one I might want to focus on for, the min- for a minute right here, is Habakkuk chapter 1, where the people are described as sacrificing to their dragnets that they are actually worshiping the works of their own hands because they believe that it is their dragnets and their own ingenuity that has made them wealthy. So I think what we're dealing with here when we're dealing with quotations from the Bible about man misusing technology is he is taking these artificial means, these things that he has created, and he is either attributing to them things which properly belong to God, or he sees in them a means of obtaining things apart from God. Yeah, I think that what you find here, too, one of the common themes is pride and, of course, just general idolatry. But what is the end? So we understand the means. The idol becomes the means to an end. So what is the end of idolatry? What is the goal there? It's pride in either self or in a strange God. Now, that sounds odd because we don't seem to think of pride as an end in and of itself, do we? We also tend to not think of worship as an end in and of itself, and I think that's probably a little bit scary for Christians. I, I worry if if we think that we worship that we might obtain simply f- so that we might obtain something like a favor from God instead of letting the glory of God and the glory that is due to God be the ends in and of itself. Now, that's how the Bible understands this. We glorify God for what he has done, of course, but we glorify God that God would be glorified. So if we look at it that way, if man is glorifying man, that's his ends, to exalt man and man's achievement. And that is probably something that we can see more and more even in our day all around us. Would you agree or disagree? I think that in our day, one of the differences between our time and Bible times is that what happens with technology is that it has become divorced even from strange gods in Mm -hmm. the sense that in Bible times, the attribution of power to particular technologies, and you could think of... You mean explicitly divorced? Yeah, 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 right. You think of the horses, the chariots, which are kind of your prime military technologies in Bible times, or things like siege machines or ships those things will often have representations of pagan divinities 
on them or near them or they are somehow associated with them. In our own time, it's not that the, the trust in technology has decreased or the trust in oneself, the pride that Goliath has, that because of his size and strength and accoutrement, he is invincible. That is the same among human beings. It's that in Bible times, they tend to, I, I almost want to give them credit for at least attributing it to some divine agent, even though it's a, a false god, where in our time, the technological means is the end in and of itself, such that if you lose your phone, you're going to panic, but you're not necessarily going to pray to some false god in the way that, say, maybe a Roman Catholic is going to pray to St. Anthony to help help him find it, right? You're just going to freak out and have somebody call your phone or you know whatever it is that you're going to do as you're searching frantically for your phone. So it's almost like in our time, the tech is a means and a God in and of itself. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're onto something here and it might manifest itself more overtly in say brand recognition, the cult of Apple, right? The cult of Android, perhaps something like that, just to obtain the newest and latest piece of tech becomes just an end because we are very much beholden to these things. We can be brand loyal, but at the end of the day, we're still beholden to the actual device itself and sort of the power that it, that it holds upon us. You, you could even see it in the sense of that technology has so become something in and of itself in our day that we have this sense that it's progressing even without us. I think, that's, I think that actually is happening with AI right now. Well, and you know, though, here's the th- oh, <laughs> but but here, here's here's the thing. Think about it this way, too, and we'll, we'll start to go through world history a, a bit later, but we've only had the term tech industry for a very short amount of time. And that's, what's, that's what we're actually talking about here, right? This actual modern techno state that we live in. Technarchy? Can we coin that term? Does that work? Sure. Sure. But yeah, that's more for uh, that's more for segment three, guys. Let's get back into the Bible here. So we have some glaring examples of idolatry. That's where the, the great misuse comes from. It's not to say that technology is simple, but as technology progresses, there does become more sins that can go along with it. The plow is good, right? It's it's a it's a it's a revolutionary invention in the history of humankind. But it doesn't really lend itself to slothfulness the way a lot of modern technology would, for example. So I, I think that the effects it has in the ancient world, while similar in some cases, is also markedly different in other cases. And that's kind of what I was getting at a little bit, too, with the idea that if technology seems to be progressing without us today, like it's just kind of happening and we just kind of are receiving it more than actually employing it. And what what I mean by that is that if technology is still in a state of like in Bible times where, yes, they might attribute it to divine agency, but they are the ones who still have to, you know, put the, the blood, sweat and the tears into creating it and actually. Well, yeah, it is. It. it is moving much faster and arguably much easier nowadays in this day and age. I think that that's an undisputed fact. Technology has never quote-unquote, improved or moved as fast as it has than in this age, unless, Zell, when you subscribe to the theory that there are lost ancient civilizations with with vastly <laughs> superior tech. 
you know, tech. I don't know. I mean, I, it it could be, who knows, you know, maybe there's rockets under the pyramids. I don't know. You'll have to ask some entertaining gentlemen on the internet about that. (laughs) But no, that's a, that's a very good point that you make. Adam, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that modern people in capitalist societies often attribute the same properties to technology that Marxists have historically attributed to capital, where they assign properties of divinity to it, a kind of omniscience, a self-motivation, capacity to do anything, and to open up an eschatological future that is both potentially largely unknown, but will ultimately lead to some great good. I think that the thing that I was referencing earlier about ancient attribution to divine agency in connection with technology, our age, I guess, is not entirely unprecedented. I mean, it may have to do with our just incredibly high standard of living in the, since World War II. But I mean, in Luke 12, the rich fool has the same utter lack of awareness of accountability to God that a lot of modern people have, where it's not so much that they're agnostic or atheistic, they're simply completely insensitive to questions beyond material comfort, because he's very busy building more storage space just before he dies. So there, there is the capacity, I think, always for technology to distract. Oh, absolutely. Of the, because yeah. of the promises of material comfort and sufficiency that it, that it, that it brings with it. Well, I mean, I mean, technology, even in the ancient world, can literally be a distraction. Look at the Colosseum. Why is it developed? And look at how, I mean, even by modern standards, there's a lot of amenities in the Roman Colosseum, even in Roman society. But we use the Colosseum as an example of it's a great, you know, it's a civil engineering project, you know, to say, give some entertainment to the masses. But ostensibly, it's just a giant escapist trap for them. Right. And and even the activities in the Colosseum are lending themselves to sin. And we have a one to one comparison uh, uh, to the Colosseum today in literally any major or mid sized city in the United States, although not quite as extreme as Roman competitions, to be sure. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. We don't want to. And I, I wasn't intending to imply that that the pitfalls of technology in, in the way you describe were not present in the ancient world because they absolutely were. But were they as accessible to the masses as they are today? Not outside the forms of social control that Rome could really only exercise in Rome. Sure. And I think, yeah. I think, I think the example of the Colosseum is, is a good one that you can see how technology can be an incredibly effective means for controlling people. In that case, we have the phrase bread and circuses even down to today to indicate that what the emperor gives you inside the Colosseum will distract you and lull you to sleep and keep you complacent. Right. Well, so, gentlemen, if we are in a fallen world, and we are, and if we can also use these technological advances as a means to evil ends, is there any sense of God giving us things that remind us of the dangers of technology or the temptations of technology? Does God give us anything in Scripture to kind of remind us of a different way? Or to show us a better way? Well, frankly, all the time. And I think this is where you encounter in many parts of Scripture these kind of, I don't, you know, I don't trust in technology or I don't trust in the work of my hands, but I trust in the living God who is able to do all things for me. And we have all kinds of examples of this, like Leviticus chapter 23, 
the Feast of Booths is given to Israel as a way of reminding them that they did not survive in the wilderness on their own power by their own technology, but because it was the Lord their God who caused their feet to not swell or their you know their garments to not wear out. You have Second Chronicles 16, where the, the great Ethiopian army is defeated by a much smaller Israelite army because it is the Lord their God who fights for them. The Psalms, you know, say, you know, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. You know, I don't trust in my bow. Hosea, God says, I, I will deliver Israel without bow, without a sword, without any of these other things, because he is the living God. And I think the, the key behind all of this to understand is that when we attribute to technology these quasi-divine attributes, what we are really doing is putting them into the place of God. And so God reminds us through these non-technological means, through these sheer forces of his power, that he is the one who ultimately gives all things and he is the one who ultimately will deliver us. We should not trust in artificial things, but trust in our living God. Absolutely. So what other technological considerations are there in the Bible? Some things that will sort of frame our later discussions on the subject. Just to start with an example that people may remember, but is highly significant. When the altar is commanded to be made in Exodus 20, it is of unhewn stones, indicating that artificiality in the form of pagan altars is to be avoided by God's own people. That, that roughness and the sense of naturalness that is present in Israel's worship, as, as ornate as much about the tabernacle and later the temple are, is something that I think you do well to remember that when you're thinking about technology or artificiality as an even broader concept, you have to understand it again in the state that man currently occupies, fallen, alienated from God, and apart from the work of the Spirit through the Word, unregenerate and at enmity with the Lord. And in that state, man is going to make things. He's not going to stop making things because the making of things, as we saw with Genesis 2, is a creational facet of being human. But that making will turn into self-divinization or the divinization of other parts of the creation. That that exchange of the glory which is due only to God, but it's then rendered by sinful man to created things that you see so many times in Romans chapter one. So I think that always when we're talking about this, we're, we're ultimately talking about human beings and their capacities for idolatry rather than simply and this is this is this is why bringing up the Amish is such a red herring in discussions of technology. When you learn about how the Amish themselves consider these things, the Amish are never attributing some kind of fetishistic evil power to the automobile, for instance. In that case, specifically, they're going to say automobiles will pull people apart and they will let people live far from their families, and that will be bad ultimately for families and for churches. You could quibble with that, but it's, 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 it's at least a rationale. It's not some kind of primitive superstition about automobiles or cameras or well, something. Well, yeah it's, yeah, it's not a black cat or walking under a ladder. Right, exactly. Yeah, which, which, is how, which is how it can so easily be caricatured. I think that they have the insight about technology. I can't agree with every single decision they make about it. And they themselves 
have changed over time. You can find pictures of Amish driving cars in the 1920s. Well, and even to this day, they're not in lockstep. It just depends right. on your bishop and community by right. and large. But they, they are thinking theologically about something that the Bible wants you to think theologically about. And maybe I'm just biased because I live so close to the wilderness, you do too. But, you know, you see big families, beautiful families doing wholesome activities, making ice cream, baking things, coming together to help one another. And then some quote unquote evangelical guy is over here, you know, who's 350 pounds. He's got bags under his eyes because he never goes to sleep. His hand is permanently hooked into a texting claw is going to come down on the Amish because they're avoiding certain things in the world. And he's laughing at them for daring to think that certain things could be harmful, both spiritually and physically. I mean, is that really, is that really whose side we want to take? Um, the walking meme. So, you know, I, or the walking dead. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is, it is a very disturbing trend that we, that we tend to see. I mean, it's just absorbed into these, into these things. I mean, what's, what's better for the Christian to be absorbed all day in some woodworking and, and, and to go, go to bed early because you're so tired from working with your hands or to be so addled with, with digital information and, and gossip and slander and entertainment by, you know, whatever malevolent force is putting it out there that you can't sleep at all during the week, but yet you would pretend that you've got a better grasp on things. Well, go ahead and tip your fedora to the masses there, guy. <laughs> and I like to use these two contrasts because it, we do. We, you know, the Amish become kind of a punchline, but when you start to look at their communities, you go, I don't know. You know, it's really hard to, I mean, doc, we're not talking doctrine here, so please no letters. But but just with general lifestyle versus lifestyle, ultimately, what is going to be better for you at the end of the day? Now, granted, I'll never be able to join a Mennonite community simply because my preference for mustaches. But hey, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, gentlemen, any any final thoughts on biblical considerations before we take a break? Yeah, just, just one more. And that is John's offhanded comments in his two last letters, his briefest letters, about how he would like to say other things, but he'll do that in person. And that is that by virtue of being created to be social beings, there are things that tech simply can't replace. There is an immediacy to the human voice. And this is why I think that when we're talking about things like divine service, that can't be outsourced to tech. It simply is not the same to watch a video, to watch even a live stream as it is to be there. If you're talking about preaching, not to speak of kind of some of the horrendous things that happen on the internet with communion. Right. Yeah. You, you can't, you can't outsource certain things about being human, whether unregenerate or, or within the church itself to tech. Some, some things simply have to be live in order to be what they should. Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more word fitly. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. 
The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, Word Fitly Spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back. Welcome back to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking a technological society and the Christian man. So we've looked at many biblical examples here, at least the overarching biblical themes of man and technology. And now we're going to steer the, the discussion more towards us today and, and how we are able to use technology well, what a technological society means for us. Now, we live in an industrialized society, a society post-industrial revolution. The agrarian movement as we know it is actually starting to make a comeback, but still rather small. So most of us are going to be living in more or less an industrialized society. And an industrialized society is a technological society. So how can a Christian keep his sanity and keep his soul in such a society. And I guess I kind of loaded that a little bit, but a little bit. It, a little bit. <laughs> what does it mean to live in a society like that? How how does that society view man? What's man's place? Man is largely subservient to technology, and I think that in order to notice this, you simply have to listen to the vocabulary and the grammar people use when discussing technology. I mentioned in the last segment about the divine properties that are often attributed to technology. There's also the optimism that people express in technology. I, I find that this varies by generation. I find, for instance, that generations older than my own are usually much more optimistic about Western medicine than my own is, but much less optimistic and, in fact, sometimes frightened of electronics largely due to unfamiliarity. But, you know, I, I, I think that when you're, when you're thinking about technology, what so often happens is that people assume that technology is leading them somewhere. It is part of our discussion of progress generally. And maybe at this point, due to decreasing life expectations in the United States, technology is really the hope that we do have for the future. We might die earlier than our parents, and we might never get out of student loan debt, but at least our smartphones are better than they were five years well, ago. Well, isn't that a bit of irony going on here <laughs> that technology leads to longer life expectancy, but in our case, in the United States, with big pharma and with you know all of the processed foods that we eat, we've managed to both lower our life expectancy with technology and yet ostensibly raise it for a certain generation. It's a, it's a double-edged sword there. Let me ask you this question. To what degree is man's identity and worth established by his vocation and his occupation? And secondly, if there's any value to a man's labor, what does automation then mean for man in this discussion? Automation has the tendency of being extremely dehumanizing. And I only really have to refer to like my days when I was working in retail, 
because the the work there is seen as being primarily a kind of semi-automated, like I only really need a body in this position because we can't I haven't figured out a machine to really, you know, do this kind of work yet. The the work itself becomes essentially uh, repetitive and frankly kind of meaningless, which is why you find such high such uh, disapproval. I mean, they're so dissatisfied with their work. I mean, I don't know when was the last time you went to Walmart and saw a cashier who was like genuinely happy with what they were doing. That isn't the the, the robot voice on the self checkout. You mean right? Even then, that voice is getting more and more bossy. But yeah. <laughs> so I mean, when when we start to treat men like cogs in a in a greater machine we really do end up treating work as being more you know, more or less meaningless. It's just something that I do to make money. And then when I go home, I engage, I sit down and I watch Netflix for six hours until I fall asleep. And this is here, remember, our working definition of technology. This is actual machine technology bumping right. up against economics, which by our definition would be a, a form of technology too. Right. So uh, all of these things are, are working together here. Man is actually minimized in in a technological society, right. as you, as you rightly point out, and it's and it's extraordinarily dehumanizing and and demoralizing. Well, and, and maybe maybe it should be pointed out here: technological society in the sense that technology has become the end all and the be all of our society. We are so wrapped up with how we do things that we almost are more interested in how we do things than whatever it is that we actually obtain. We almost don't have goals anymore because we're so in love with, you know, getting somewhere. <laughs> right? So the the newest technology becomes interesting and and something to be obtained simply because it is new, not because it is it is better or because it does some, or gets you somewhere, but just because, hey, you know, this is this year's model. Yeah. Market forces have dictated you will do this. Right. Do you want to be a good citizen? Consume product. Press X. You know, <laughs> they live. You know, all that sort of stuff. Right. So. They live. Pretty much a documentary, folks. WFS <laughs> word fitly spoken wants you to put the glasses on. Okay. <laughs> so then, if man is losing his sense of purpose, and particularly, it would be obviously man's chief end is to serve God and to glorify Him. And to worship him, we understand that. But men, a man in his vocation provides for his wife, provides for his family, supports his community. As those things are taken away by all these societal factors which seek to break up the family or, or which seek to stop men and women from even having a family, then what fills that vacuum for men and women other than, than technology or, or some other end? So what, what does that look like? A man has been or a woman has been taught to focus only on career, but that career is going to be replaced by some machine sooner or later because that's what a good a good market goy does. So so what does the man do then? And it's like you say, Zell, when he ends up on his couch, so so what is he doing to fulfill himself? What what is fulfillment in a technological society? I think it has to concern if you're unusually productive, some kind of hobby, you may become more or less obsessed with making things or flying drones or something. And I say that if you're unusually productive, I think more often for most people, it concerns being entertained by some means. And the reason that you do either of those two things is because the thing that you actually spend most of your time doing, your job, 
is either waiting for automation to replace it. In the ancient world, that would have been having your job replaced by a slave, somebody that costs the person in charge less. So you're waiting to be replaced by a slave or you are an auxiliary. Wait, wait, are we sure we're talking about the ancient world here, Adam? Well, ironically, robot is a Hungarian word for slave. But anyway, continue. Yeah. Yeah. Or you are a kind of ancillary to the system that mostly runs from slave labor. I mean, there, there are ancient parallels to this. The Italian peninsula during Jesus's earthly ministry is largely occupied by large landowners who employ slaves. I mean, the, the, so to speak, Roman family farm was becoming more or less a thing of the past by the time of Jesus. So there are some ancient parallels, but again, those are predicated on things that usually could not be achievable at a large scale until modern times when communication becomes practically instant. And that is things like social control over your time, provision of entertainment, the capacity to monitor your time that generally market forces and and political forces don't have until modernity. So there is an unprecedentedness, if that's a word, to the times that we're living in, not so much that people weren't idolaters in the past or they didn't use technology in the past, but that the capacity for the people who produce technology and the capacity of the people who are produced by technology, whose lives are so shaped by technology, all of that accelerates at a certain point in human history that personally, I would identify with the advent of the use of fossil fuels in the 19th century, prior to which things simply are not nearly as instantaneously available or transmissible as they are since that time. It's always the robber barons somehow is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, maybe. Yeah. I mean, but I, I think that what changes, because when you study ancient history, you can see parallels and we've drawn out some of those from Bible times. It's simply the case that a lot of those things you know, it, it, it's not as if a chariot can actually achieve instantaneous control over a subject population. It's going to take you a while for your chariot, which most often in, in the ancient Near East is actually drawn by, you know, donkeys to get somewhere. Now I can have, you know, a carrier group or bombers available to me within a matter of hours anywhere in the world if I'm, you know, the president of the United States, for instance. So means of control are just so much greater and so much more powerful in modernity. And that's not to speak about the process of automation, which really economically is just a process of increasing the amount of slave labor in the economy, which obviously makes you obsolete if you want to get paid. Well, you could also see more bristling against the yoke in the ancient world and even up through the Industrial Revolution, even to be fair, up until the 19th century. I mean, at least a guy would pick up an axe handle and and get a little bit upset about his station every now and then. Not an endorsement of the Wobblies, by the way, just using an example. (laughs) Now, nobody even chafes at the bridle. They've taken that yoke and put it upon themselves in the form of credit payments for the latest iPhone or, or whatever, or whatever you want it, you want it to look like. Let me add this too. One thing that I thinking about in terms of social control and also that kind of distraction, which this, this brings with it, One of the things that I've noticed, like with Amazon, is Amazon has drastically changed our perception of how quickly things should be delivered. 
because of like Amazon Prime, you know, and this and their promise, although it's kind of changed recently, of being able to deliver anything within two days, although it's three if you're out here in Western North Dakota, but that's beside the point. Right. That kind of changes it so that when you get a company who says that we'll have it to you like in a couple of weeks or whatever, you say, oh, my gosh, why would it take so long? Whereas like in previous generations, you know, even waiting like a couple of months wouldn't have been considered unusual. But that kind of control that comes through that, I think, is also seen in a box that recently came to our house from Amazon advertising something on Amazon Prime. And I couldn't help but notice that it was advertising a movie and then it said on the top of the box, Amazon Prime, watch now. And this kind of pushing the, new, the, the latest craze of like Netflix binging or, you know, Amazon Prime binging so that, you know, you're encouraged to watch these videos or movies or TV episodes or whatever it might be for hours on end. And that being considered a normal activity, even some, you know, some kind of an entertaining activity, I think speaks a great deal about what this kind of technology is doing to us. You, I mean, it, it's observable that social norms change drastically. It's, it's probably a big part of generational misunderstanding and mutual incomprehension because generations are, are so shaped by vastly different technologies. I mean, I, I find the boomer generation's consumption of TV to be utterly mystifying, right? <laughs> because I, I don't, but, but I understand that's basically the entertainment technology that they grew up with. And the stuff that you grow up with is the stuff that's going to shape your tastes more or less for the rest of your life in many cases. So I think that when you're, what you're saying about, you know, watch now, I mean, it, it things like that change people's time horizons almost overnight because they become accustomed to a certain level of something in the same way that someone who is in the city is accustomed to a certain level of noise and then goes out in the country and it is terrifyingly silent, right? That doesn't mean that the city is somehow natural or that birds or coyotes or bullfrogs are actually terrifying necessarily. It's just that if you are accustomed to something, that will come to seem natural, right? That that word natural, I think, gets really slippery because once you are conditioned heavily enough, nature itself is no longer natural. It seems unnatural to form a family when you're 20 years old, even though throughout human history, that's just about the most natural thing in the world. And you would have even had like a couple of kids, maybe, even, <laughs> right. you know? <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. So I, I I think that one of the powers that technology has as it changes, one of the powers to change us that it possesses is to make us sense that something is utterly natural that is, in fact, utterly unnatural. That may be good or bad, I suppose. I mean, I, I guess it's great that uh, there are no longer malaria epidemics in Philadelphia, which is a frequent problem in early Pennsylvania history. But <laughs> you know, I mean, that th that that power to eradicate nature is something that we possess, frighteningly. And I think we see it happening before our eyes. And for the record, you know, no measles and polio is, is pretty great. Pretty, pretty good. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I right. mean, there are positive technological advances, and yet there's always that ever-creeping danger to them. I think that's why societies, and this is going to be the unpopular quote, have at times saw fit to at least regulate 
or, or suppress certain things. Now, I'm very uncomfortable with that idea myself, and I'm absolutely not endorsing it, but you at least see where rulers have saw the danger in something and said, okay, maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't have this. Again, I'm an American. Not, I'm, I'm going to bristle at that, and, and you probably should too, but the principle still stands that certain things are not always good for us. And we recognize that in a less harmful application. You know, uh, you wouldn't give, well, okay, uh, actually some people would. Uh, children are not positively influenced by a lot of screen time. Right. And yet many would just hand a tablet or a computer or a phone over to their children to just stare at because it keeps them quiet. It's not good for the child. We recognize or ought to recognize that junk food isn't great for a child, so we don't feed it to them all the time, for example. Or just laying around on the couch being inside. You know, time was you would send them outside. That sort of thing. We did as a society recognize that certain things just aren't good for us. And that they are to be avoided or used sparingly. Many of us would say that alcohol moderately consumed is a good can be a good thing. But hopefully none of us would say, I'm going to give this 1.75 liter bottle of Jim Beam to five-year-old little Timmy over here because he's having a rough day. <laughs> <laughs> being five. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But the accessibility has often led to overconsumption with no limits. So that's why you start to see these these apps and industries pop up that are limiting screen time even for adults saying no for adults yeah yep. saying yep. saying no you know frank uh, you you've had enough facebook for today we're going to close this app until eight o'clock tomorrow morning or or whatever. Uh, yeah. So people are beginning to see the, see the limits of this, but we don't know if it's really a sufficient number of people to make a great difference. I, th- I think it is going to lead to a great public health crisis. It's already led to an ethical crisis and something that we need to think through. But unfortunately, we've lost that ability to think because we are being conditioned only to consume, only to consume, only to spend until before we know it, our people is replaced and then we ourselves are replaced by other groups or machines, and we don't even see it coming because we're too busy, you know, binging the office for the for the fifth time. You know, again, this isn't a blanket indictment of of all technology or anything like that. It's not even an indictment on entertainment. It's simply explaining the reality that we live in and the dangers of overconsumption and the dangers of not having critical thinking skills and really the dangers of a Christian thinking that everything is somehow neutral and not being able to read things through the lens of, of Scripture. Gentlemen, any final thoughts here, Zella? You mentioned with like overconsumption of things, and it makes me think of like how the Bible presents alcohol as being both a potential source of great abuse as well as a potential source of, you know, happiness. So that, you know, give wine to the heart of man that he may be glad as opposed to don't be drunk. And I think we have to be willing to apply that same idea to everything, including our technologies. That yes, technology has done great good because technology is a great gift of God in many cases, But we can abuse these artificial things and turn them into quasi-divine or even fully divine things if we abuse them and and misunderstand what they are given to us for. Well, let me ask you, gentlemen, one final question before we wrap up. Is it profitable? Is it worth it for us to look at the past, to look at a different time, to maybe press the escape button and try to go back a little ways? 
maybe even to a pre-industrial time and an agrarian time. Should we try to emulate that to some degree? Are there things that we can learn? Or, or must we, as Christians living today, simply submit to the technocracy? Well, I think that something that you come to understand when you look at past civilizations, uh, also their, their technologies, um, things that we don't even have the capacity to recreate, which is actually true about some, some Roman civil engineering, is that everything has limits. If it is created either directly as man is or indirectly by man, it has limits. It cannot go on forever. And if there's one central lie about progress with a capital P, which is so often associated with technology, it is that it will expand and grow and go on forever. And if there's you know one thing you can see from past civilizations, it's that they did not go on forever. So when you're thinking about technology, understand that because it is truly not divine, even indirectly, it cannot give all that it promises, and we cannot go on forever the way we are. I think in an agrarian society, or at least one that is much more in touch with the land and sees nature as being natural, for the lack of a better word, as opposed to the unnatural thing that we sometimes see it as today, if we are willing to see that limit, which an agrarian society fosters, that, you know, I am tied to the land. I'm not the one who produces the rain. I'm not the one who gives the growth. I am the one who has come after my fathers before me, the fathers you know, at my feet in the ground, and I'm looking up towards God from whom all good things come. Yes, in that sense, I think there is something to be regained from an agrarian way of life, one that acknowledges those limits and, and that admits that we are in full need of God who gives us all good things. Very good. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless. Tell me a story in this century and moment of mania. Tell me a story. Make it a story of great distances and starlight. The name of the story will be time, but you must not pronounce its name. Tell me a story of deep delight.